0: The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 21. You can find it printed on page 9 of your worship folder. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the lake. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
1: Gracious God, Holy Father, Holy Mother, loving and nurturing us back to health, we pray that Your healing ministry would be with us today. Whatever we bring into this room, our anxiety, our fear, Our complacency, a sense of disconnect with you or with others, and in particular today, our failure, help us to know that your response to our complicated lives is always to move towards us, to heal, to love, and restore. And so, we invite you. To do that today. Give us grace, we pray, to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. I was born and raised on 1702 Meadowbrook Avenue. In Lakeland, Florida, Meadowbrook Avenue is also known as Christmas Tree Lane, which means everybody puts a Christmas tree not only inside their house, but on the front lawn, at least on our street. And, uh, and it was a big deal. And one of the things that used to frustrate my mom and dad the most about Christmas Tree Lane are these nincompoop no good kids who would find out that if you unscrewed these light bulbs and you threw them on the street they made a really cool popping sound. And so it was literally the unforgivable sin in the Harold home to be a part of anything like those rule breakers. I was 12. Jeff Lang knocked on the front door. My mom and dad were out to dinner on a Saturday night as they were most Saturday nights and invited me to take a walk with him up and down Christmas tree lane because the light bulbs are so much fun to steal and break on the ground. And I participated in this crime. Not only did I participate in this crime, but I think we set a new Meadowbrook Road Avenue, um, Meadowbrook Road record, 52 light bulbs. I remember how many. The reason I remember how many is because when I came in and told my sister, she said, I'm telling mom and dad as soon as they get home. This was her role in our family system, by the way. (laughs) Constant role. And uh, and I said, no, you can't. She says, oh, as soon as they get inside. You just cannot do that in this home. And so they walk inside, and uh, she proceeds to tell them. And um, two things happened. My mom and dad sat down with me, and they told me they love me. And they also told me that tomorrow we're going to go to every one of those doors, and we're going to talk about how many we stole, and we're going to ask for forgiveness from each of these people, and we're going to buy them new light bulbs It's going to come out of my lawnmower money, lawn, lawn mowing business money, etc. Those two things happened. But here's the most important thing that happened in that moment, and you already know what it is. At that moment, I'm telling you, to do this in this family was just really the worst thing you could do as a 12-year-old, pretty much. And their first response was to say, I love you. That failure and love can actually exist in the same place. This is why here I am, 56 years old, and I remember it like yesterday. I really expected... Something far different, (laughs) but in that moment, for some, you know, they didn't always get it right. Parents, we always don't get it right. Believe me, I know I didn't, and I know my mom and dad didn't either. Let's just say that. But in this particular instance, I believe they saw an opportunity. Let this be a lesson to all parents, right? That when your children fail, is an opportunity to love them in that failure. Because that's how lives get changed. Now, here we have this story that precedes this story. And it's maybe the biggest epic ministry fail in the Bible. It's Peter. And Peter denied Jesus three times after telling Jesus, look, you're, you're not going to die. I'll die for you. And Jesus told him famously, before the rooster crows in the morning excuse me, with the rooster crows, you will have already denied me three times before the rooster crows. And that's exactly what Peter did. He was a ministry failure. It's how most ministers feel, to be really honest. Third and Walnut Bar in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, used to be a church. And when the church failed a bar sprung up in its place. It went through a number of different hands. But it seemed like the perfect location for a pastor by the name of J.A. Briggs who decided to use 3rd and Walnut as the venue for his first ever Epic Fail Pastors Conference. This is in 2011. He said, Considering the nature of the event, the location seemed perfect. And like most crazy ideas, the Epic Fail Pastors Conference emerged spontaneously after Briggs confessed on his blog that the highly produced, expertly marketed Pastors Conference is featuring success stories from famous megachurch pastors left him feeling inadequate and depressed. Most ministers can't relate to overcrowded buildings and enormous marketing budgets, he said. Most ministers are just trying to make it through the day. In fact, a whopping 80% report being discouraged in their roles, and half say they would quit if they could. But none of the conferences Briggs attended provided a safe place to talk about failure. What if there was an epic fail pastors conference with the tagline, Where leaders put their worst foot forward? Briggs asked on his blog, nearly 100 pastors and former pastors from 17 states descended upon Third and Walnut Bar to eat, drink, pray, and talk about what ministry is really like. Wow. You know what was so powerful about that conversation with my mom and dad? It's the same thing that's so powerful about this conference. There was honesty about real failure, and there was acceptance and love, and they co-joined to create a powerful moment. How does God how does God show up in the midst of our failures? If we're gonna be talking about friendship with God, what does God do when we fail at being the friend of Jesus? How does God show up in our lives in those moments? And I think this story is so critical for us to use in some ways as a paradigm. And it involves three C's. I hate to be alliterating. That's kind of annoying for me, but I'm going to do it. Three C's, community, compassion, and commission. First, community. Here we are two weeks later after this epic fail by Peter, and they're in this boat, and they're fishing. And i got to believe a couple things are going on in this boat. First, they're reflecting. They're talking about what they've just been through. What they had been through for not just the last couple of weeks, the crucifixion and then the supposed resurrection of Jesus and the confusion of that and what's going on with that and trying to process that, but just the whole three-year experience. i got to believe they're talking about, okay, you know, I think I did really well and I didn't respond well here. And then it comes to Peter, and he's kind of like saying, I'm not saying a word. Not like, yet, yeah, Peter, that was a rough moment. How did I do? When should I have said something and not said it? Do I feel guilty about it? What's going on with me? But also, if you put yourself in that boat, I think you're also talking about three people, a number of people who were scared. They were in danger. They were connected to the person who had been murdered by the empire. Their reputations were with that person on that cross. And they've got to be feeling like they're in danger as well. And so what you have is you have this moment where it should be a moment that we always have and always know, but because of the potential persecution they are under, they're beginning to see something that becomes crystal clear. They needed each other for survival. The intensity of their community was so intense because of this. See, Christian community is a gathering of failures. I hope you're encouraged by that. (laughs) I told somebody before church today, they're having a rough week, and I said, you don't have to have it all together. I didn't quite say it that way. It's a little more coarse. You don't have to have it together to be in this church. Christian community is a gathering of failures who need each other and God's grace. And receive God's grace from each other. Maybe that's a new branding moment for our church. Maybe when you open up the website, the first thing you see is failing miserably at following Jesus. No? Okay. But we especially need community in the midst of our failures. We need other people to convince us that God still loves us. We do. See, their community is intense, not because it's homogenous, not because they all look alike or they all have the exact same opinion about everything, and not because they've just found their people and their age and they look like them and you spend the same kind of money, et cetera, et cetera. No, their intensity is found in the diversity of failures who are struggling to get by from all walks of life. And so the question might be this for you right now in this particular point. Are you right now, are your failures crushing you instead of potentially teaching you because you have isolated yourself in your own Christian journey or faith development? This is why the work of our community group leaders and their hosts and others who help pull it off each week are so vital creating a space for people to come together and be honest and not have to have it all together. It's transformative. You need others in your life who know Jesus in order for you to know Jesus the way you need to know Jesus. So the first thing, that God comes to us in community. Second thing, God comes to us in our affairs in compassion. Because we see what happens now in the... uh, In verses 4 to 6. Because Jesus has called them to to the side after they've gone fishing. Jesus shows up after daybreak. Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they're not able to haul in the fish because there were so many. Now, if you're a familiar reader of the Bible at all, you may, you may be thinking, wait a second, doesn't this happen somewhere else in the Bible? And it actually does. Much earlier in Jesus' ministry, this same dynamic is going on. We have fishermen who are not able to bring in any fish. Jesus says, cast your nets over here or there. A massive haul is brought in. The first time this happened, you know what Peter did? The first time it happened, Peter got on his knees and says, depart from me. Depart from me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an, I'm a sinner. And in that moment, I believe G- Peter is like, wait a second. I am in the presence of the divine. And I will humble myself right now. Then here we are, let's say three years later. Same dynamic takes place. And what does Peter do? Peter, the one who had the most famous fail of anybody in this boat, Peter jumps into the water and swims toward the person he had failed. Think about that. Are you the kind of person that people move towards when they fail? What's going on with that? I think in the first instance, Peter was able to say, Jesus is divine. But in this second instance, Peter feels known and loved and seen as a loved failure. And he moves towards Jesus because he has actually been really convinced that he will find grace. Grace. Now here's my question. What voice do you hear in the midst of your failure? What voice do you hear in the midst of your failure? Because it's a real good chance that that voice is running your life in one way or another all the time. Is pushing you? Is exhausting you? Is shaming you? Embarrassing you? What voice do you hear in the midst of your failure? And what might it mean for that voice to be Jesus saying, I'm making breakfast. Bring all of it. Bring all of yourself. Because in many ways, there's kind of like, there are two ways you can kind of build your life and your self-image. There's more than two, but let's just say two. You can build it on your performance. In any failure, in any reminder of your weakness, of your sin or your lack, it will feel like death to you. And I think the result will be That you're going to become very touchy. You're going to be a person who's kind of always trying to hide, perhaps. Someone who doesn't deal well with anyone else pointing out something in your life that needs correction or adjustment. It can turn you into a real bully, to be honest. Or you can build your life on the gospel of God's grace where your sin or your failure makes the sight of God sweet to you because you know to what lengths God has gone to to demonstrate His love for you. And I think, I think that's how you get to the place where you become a person who people will then flock to in their failure. Because when you have received the compassion of God and experienced it and built your life on it, I really don't think it can help but make you a person of vulnerability, of expansive generosity, of compassion, so that your children, your friends, your coworkers don't have to hide from you you become a person that's safe because you've begun to develop a theology of patience with yourself, with others, and with God. But Peter needed more. Peter jumped in that water. Peter swam to Jesus. But Peter needed another step. Because something had happened. There was a conversation that needed to take place. You know, our memories are very connected to our sense of smell. You know this, right? I did a little research. And it says uh, the, re- the in-depth research I did <laughs> on this website called Google. Google. To the sense of smell is closely linked with memory, probably more so than any of our other senses. Sense bypass the thalamus and go straight to the brain's smell center, known as the olfactory bulb. The olfactory bulb is directly connected to the amygdala and hippocampus, which might explain why the smell of something can so immediately trigger a detailed memory or even intense emotion. In this passage, I think it's very interesting, and a couple of commentators will tell you this. It says that Jesus, it it gives a detail. Whenever you see a real sharp detail in a story in the Bible, you might go, huh, what's, what's behind that? Does anybody know what the detail is? Charcoal. He had a charcoal fire. When Peter denied Jesus, he was warming himself by a charcoal fire. I find that fascinating. That maybe as Peter comes off the shore, he smells his failure. And there's Jesus making breakfast. But Jesus wants to go deeper with Peter. And so he does something that may look like mean Jesus, right? Like overkill Jesus. He asked Peter, how many times? Three. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because Jesus is not just after a warm moment. He is after a rehabilitated moment. He is after Peter's transformation to face the failure head on and to see that the way is through it. Our friends in recovery have so much to teach us about all of this. And each time I talk with one, I I get this incredible sense of authenticity about how things have to be named, the exact nature of our wrongs in order for freedom and liberation to take place. I believe Jesus knows this. And Peter repeating the answer, yes, I love you in my misery. I love you in my failure, in my shame. What might Peter have been thinking? I wanted to love you in my success. I wanted to love you in my heroicism. I wanted to love you by getting it all right. But I'm here to tell you I love you in my denial. And by doing this, I believe Jesus is opening up Peter's capacity for love. I mean, is it good news to you today to hear that your perfect love for God, for others, is still love. Flawed people loving one another in a flawed way still transforms lives. Jesus is for anybody who desperately needs to know that you can love someone in your failure, in your, superf- in, in your imperfection, in your denial, which would be all of us, And that God can and will use this kind of honest and real and imperfect love. But there's there's one more step further with Peter. And this really sounds like, okay, Jesus, why did you tell him this? He goes on to tell Peter, Peter, your future is going to be that you are going to be following me, to the cross. Jesus will tell you hard things to heal you. Maybe this is the painful gift that Peter needed to finally be done with himself, to finally be free. To finally be able to live undefended. To finally be able to be present in a way he could never be present before. Nothing to prove now. Nothing to defend now. Nothing to conquer. Nothing to win. I've won everything for you, Peter. Following me will have a cost. At that pastors' conference, J.R. Briggs wrote a book about it, called "Fail: Finding Hope and Grace in the Midst of Ministry Failure." I doubt it was a big, big seller. I don't know. I hope it is. I didn't look that part up, but it says there pastors shared their stories and struggles with refreshing courage. Now, this is talking about pastors, but this is apply this across everyone. They opened up about their battles with depression and suicidal thoughts, their terror of failure, and their broken hearts over a failed church nine years prior. They shared how dry, lost, and alone they felt. I looked at my watch. We were 17 minutes in, and people were standing up telling complete strangers stories of pain, loss, fear, and deep wounds. There were no superstars, no impressive videos, no green rooms, and no lanyards. There was laughter and prayer and tears and refills. It was, as one retired pastor put it, a kiss from God on our bruises. When we invite you to give your life to God in this church, we're inviting you into a lifetime of God kissing your bruises, of God seeking your healing, of God committed to making breakfast on the shore when you fail. And we have the opportunity together to model that as best we can with one another. Lives are changed when failure and love can go together in responsible and beautiful ways. Breakfast for failures. Everybody's welcome. Let's pray. Gracious God, God, Help us to believe the good news is way better than we have maybe been led to believe. Help us to believe that you are always longing to be gracious to us and doing so. Help us, like Peter, in whatever boat we find ourselves in, Strip everything and jump into the sea to swim towards you. And help us to believe we'll find you on the shore, welcoming us. Give us grace to believe this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.